0: Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That, that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com
1: to check it out. Okay, Chuck Bachelor, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? I'm
0: doing very well. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, uh, I always ask my guests, where are you coming from? Where's, where's this picture right now?
0: Okay, so I'm I'm in uh, uh, Rhode Island, just about seven miles south of Providence, Rhode Island. Um, my wife and I moved. Uh, we used to live in Massachusetts. Basically, bluefish is mainly in mass, but we our membership is half Rhode Island, half mass. Um, but we wanted to live on the water, so we moved down here and got a place right on the uh, Providence River. Um, it's brackish. So it's like starting to open up to the ocean. So it's uh it's a nice spot.
1: Beautiful. Love it, man. Now, did you stop bluefish yourself? No, it existed. Um, it,
0: it, uh, I think it started in the seventies. It was actually a high school coach at the out high school who um, was doing a nice job with high school swimming and wanted to kind of provide the, the kids that wanted it year round. And so he, he started the team um, it, back then obviously it would have been like AAU or something. Um, and then there was a guy, uh, Paul Mangili, who did a real nice job. Uh, he had actually started his career out working for Dan Flack, which is a funny little circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a nice job with it. And then they combined with three other teams. It became uh, like a super team of Magnus Um, and that doesn't that conglomeration doesn't exist anymore but when we when Paul was retiring he and I were friends and he approached me and um, Elizabeth was uh, 12 on the team and um, he approached me actually at nationals and uh, we we talked about it in the uh, hospitality at Indy and uh, you know he said I'm looking to get out and I think you'd be you'd be the one person that I would think could really take this program beyond where I had it. And uh, so 2005, we, we bought it from him and uh, you know, create crazy stuff from day one uh, you know, pool contracts were, were not uh, and, and no fault to Paul's, but just administrations changed things weren't as they seemed uh, the roster of like 130 kids became 70 kids. Wow. Um, but, but it, you know, it, it was a nice eight lane, 25 yard pool, and we went to work. Obviously, uh, having Elizabeth there and working with her, and um, you know, was kind of what put us on the map for sure. Um, the, the first summer, so summer of 2006, uh, Elizabeth made the Pan Pack and then World Championships in Irvine. And uh, I think we, Bluefish, placed um, that you know when they used to keep uh, team scores hmm. I think we were top we were top 10 I think maybe eighth and uh, people were like who, who the heck is Bluefish
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah that's cool they know now so that's awesome yeah. um, you know in terms of that's an interesting point you bring up you know a young uh, Elizabeth Beisel in, in your group well how do you identify a young talent like that and, and what do you wh- what do you do with it at the time? That,
0: that's a great question, but it, in Elizabeth's case, um, there was no trickery of identifying. I mean, she was um, when, so the the one we were negotiating to purchase the team was at the very end of the summer of 2005. And um, she was at Junior Nationals. And so I had finished up with my New England Barracuda team at Nationals and I stayed out a few days because it was Elizabeth. And so at age 12, I, I'm not sure if she won, but she was definitely top two in in the 4im and the 200 backstroke at that junior nationals mm. at age 12. So she was, there was no uh, discovery of her. She, her mom told me um, she could swim a legal 100im at age five. wow so she was uh i mean you know everyone has different gifts and stuff she she ended up um you know not being the tallest woman behind the blocks kind of thing um but with her kind of ability that she had her love of racing and willingness to work really really hard she she went very far
1: well then what do you do once you've got a talent like that at 12 you know, obviously your projections are college and international, you know, you you start to have dreams of like, hey, I could take this kid all the way. So how do you nurture a talent like that without driving it down their throat and pushing them? Right. You know, so
0: that's tricky. And and to be honest, I I think I got lucky a lot, a lot of the times. Uh, But in all honesty, the first six months uh, that I worked with her, she hated me. And I found her very frustrating. And it wasn't until I got smart enough to recognize I needed to treat her like a 12 going on 13 year old girl rather than this elite or no, I I guess actually when I started working with her, she was 13. She turned 13 that summer, but regardless, Um, you know, I, I had to treat her like a 13 year old girl and not like the athlete she was. And. You know, I was there expecting her to behave like a 16, 17, 18 year old at that level would behave. Hmm. And she just, you know, wanted to have fun and, and hang out with her friends. And, um, you, you know, early on, it, you, she was somewhat disruptive in, in a way that because everybody wanted to be around her and hear what she had to say. And so when she would show up at practice and she had a 45 minute drive to an hour, And so if there was traffic and she was a few minutes late, basically practice stopped when she got there because everybody wanted, they much preferred to hear what she had to say than what I had to say. Um, But so I I got smart, um, probably some advice from my wife and and some other people. Um, And and the way I won her over, this is a true story. Um, We were at our December uh, senior championships, and I knew that the winner of each event, the coach was going to give out the awards like a lot of meets do. And I knew for sure she was going to win the four year I am. And so before the race uh, and and they awarded right after the race. So before the race, I had this little electronic fart machine that uh, had a little remote speaker. And I hid the speaker behind the curtain where there was, you know, one, two, and three, where the people were going to stand on the podium. And uh, so sure enough, she won and I go to give her her medal and I hit the button as she bent over and, and everyone just starts cracking up and she and she thought that was the funniest thing ever so um i that that little toy is probably as responsible as anything else to all of her and my success together because it was that moment um when she realized that i could be fun and not just this you know slave driver kind of a coach so um that that was a great moment
1: i love that uh,
0: i gave it to her and then she brought it to school and got in trouble (laughs) (laughs)
1: No doubt, right. I mean, how did you develop your philosophy as a coach, like early on, and and we, we can talk about how it's evolved over time. Yeah, but like sure. early on, what was your philosophy?
0: So I, you know, I was really lucky. Um, my my first coach, uh, a guy named John Levine, who still coaches in Connecticut, um, and he's had a lot of junior teamers, and he just had a kid this past summer uh, win juniors in the mile. Um, so he's, you know, he's probably a name that not too many people have heard of, um, but he's a great coach. Um, and I swam for him basically from seven till 14. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I hooked up with Chris Martin. Um, and so between the two of them, that was really a, a great deal of my kind of coaching mentorship. And through Chris, I got to have a lot of exposure to Dick Schulberg. Um, and that was, you know, so every time I was in Dick's pool, um, it was scary. It was exciting. You know, I'm, I'm swimming with uh, Dave Wharton and Jeff Pryor. I don't know if those are names, you know, Dave Wharton was, uh, gosh, I think an 88 around then world record holder mm-hmm. in the form that I am. And, okay. um, you know, and I'm, I'm just trailing behind these guys in the lane and Scholberg is, you know, telling some story about how, people used to have to breathe through a straw and stop complaining about the air quality and, um, you know, just, just stuff like that. So, um, and then at UNC uh, headed under Frank Comfort and Rich the but my direct coach was Dan Flack. And so my, my education just continued growing and Dan used, Dan and I used to sometimes before practice talk about what we were going to do at practice and, um, you know, just kind of continued my, my learning and starting to coach from within the pool. Um, Yeah. So,
1: yeah. uh, Has it, has it changed recently in terms of, you know, anything that you're seeing, uh, you know, what I'm seeing around the world now is a lot of people swimming fast and that's pretty incredible, but um, you know, are you learning anything in this COVID situation about yourself in terms of maybe how you might change up your coaching or are are you still pretty firm on exactly what you believe in?
0: Well, I I think there's some firm kind of fundamentals. Um, However, uh, it's a constant evolution, which I'm thankful for. Um, Probably the the first evolution was, um, you know, literally in the very beginning of my career, I was actually coaching at Petty where I had swum for Chris. And um, when I got there, it was a pretty low point and in Really, basically, uh, three seasons. That—that's the amount of time I was there. Um, we, we were starting to have some success. Kids winning at juniors, couple kids making trials, stuff like that. Um, but at that time, I was trying to be Chris Martin, mm. and um, that wasn't me, and it wasn't really working. I was unhappy. The—the the athletes were very unhappy. Um, you know, they were in shape, but it, it wasn't, uh, um, you know, it wasn't me. I'm, I, 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 am I think I'm a fun guy. Um, so it, you know, I had to bring that Chris used to always say, it's not about fun. And I agree with that, but I think, okay, it's not about fun, but fun has to be an element. Yeah, sure. um, and that's also for me and the athletes. So, I often kind of gauge that if I'm having a good time, they're probably having a good time too. I mean, I'll I'll be, I don't know if Carrie has any stories, but um, most of the athletes that I've had the opportunity to work with recognize that, you know, on pool deck with a stopwatch in my hand, I can, you know, be pretty intense. But at the same time, I'll, you know, be a silly and goofy, you know, yelling to people out the window of the van just to get them to turn around or something like that. Uh, my wife was ready to kill me. Uh, we've we've brought um, age group kids to trials the last uh, three three trials, and uh, it's a you know it's a great experience for them. It's fun for us and, and the athletes that are competing there to have a little cheering section. Yeah. Um, you know, Greg Troy I think in in twelve uh, commented to, that Elizabeth's uh, prelim swim in the four am was better because she had you know thirty little bluefish kids yelling for. Um, but so anyway, my, my wife is walking with 30 13 and unders and they're crossing the street. And it just so happens we're at the stoplight, the next car ready to go. So we see them. And, and I pulled the trick on my wife fully believing that she knew my shenanigans and was not going to fall for it. And I said, Hey, Hey, excuse me. I think you dropped something. And so, she and 10 kids all walk back looking for whatever they thought they dropped, and I, I still haven't lived that down. <laughs> but I, you know, just trying to bring a little levity yeah. to what could be a pretty tense situation. Um, I think that's been a big part of my success. Um, you know, work hard, but let's have fun while we're doing it. I love it. We're man. surrounded. With good people.
1: lesson very good lesson yeah it's it's got to be enjoyable for you if you if you're not enjoying it work walking on the deck they're going to pick up on that too and oh, they're yeah. not going to enjoy it you know yeah. so and
0: there, and there's been times in my life in my career when it's you know for whatever's going on in your life it's it's not clicking as well um and you're 100 percent right they, the athletes they might not know what's wrong but they 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 get it you know it's a different energy vibe for sure and then you get less from them and and You know, so I I recognized that a long time ago that 99% of the time, if I'm not getting from them what I want, it's because I'm not delivering what they want. Yeah, or what they've gotten
1: accustomed to. That's a really good point. How do you separate that? How do you separate your life? Because you're a human. You're a you're a man, and you're you know you've got your own relationships and things, and you've got your own bills to pay and your own stresses. And so you know what they see of you is this stoic coach. You're supposed to have all your shit together. You know, like like all adults, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. But um. but there's obviously times in your life when you, when you don't, and you can't, sure. or, you know, so there's yeah. struggle. So how have you managed that over time? Well, I'm,
0: I'm lucky because my wife is wonderful, um, but, but she's in it as well. So I think so many coaches struggle with that balance where, um, you know, the spouse doesn't understand or they, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard life. I mean, and, and with COVID right now, it, it, it's like we took uh, 10 steps, not, I don't want to say backwards, but almost back in time in the sense of, you know, I thought at this point in my career, I'm done with work until nine o'clock at night, yeah. not anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife and I are right now on deck together till nine o'clock, which actually makes it a lot better. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and, and trying to, you know, I love to cook. You may, may know that. Um, so my thing would normally have been, to get home at like 10 o'clock and then cook dinner mm. and then we you know have some wine and eat and be midnight we'd be going to bed well that that's not all that healthy and that's not going to work um, so now i'm uh, kind of making gourmet meals to go <laughs> in the daytime that we pack in a little cooler mm. and basically during the third practice uh, you know of the night um, we're, we're having hummus and, and uh, um, cucumbers wow. and things like that. So wow. that, that's actually been working really, really well. Um, I wouldn't say I want this to be forever. Um, yes. But for now, it's working very well.
1: What's your advice to, to younger coaches? Let's say we get out of this COVID situation, and we go back to, to normal life. How do you balance being a club coach and, and having a family? It's it's a it's a struggle for all of us, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I um I, I don't have my own children. Um and that that was a choice that we made that we're we're good with. Um, but you, you can't help but ever what you know, I I do a lot of times think like when I'm old, right? Um, what's that going to look like? Uh, um, but uh, I've got great nieces and nephews, so hopefully they'll take care of me. But
1: how do you be? How do you be a, you be a, a great husband in balance yeah. balance coaching?
0: I, you, obviously, you have to make certain decisions uh, that make sense for for the family. Um, and again, I've been very lucky and been able to make. Uh, virtually all the bluefish decisions that we've made have been about swimming and performance and less about uh, finances and, and less about relationship because we're in it together. Mm. Um, you know, there, there were, there were times on my wife's birthday um, that I'm sitting on a plane next to Elizabeth um, and Christy was more than okay with it. Right. Like it, it wasn't a, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate the birthday when you get back or before or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, really lucky. I, I know a lot of coaches that are not in that same situation. Um, I, I think you, you got to just take each thing as it comes yeah. and try to do the best you can. Um, there's certainly a lot of coaches out there that have, you know, that are great parents, great husbands, great wives and have done a really nice job it's you know it's like anything it's a lot of work right i mean if if you're if you're trying to take a nap at, at the job it, none of it's going to work yeah um, and hopefully you enjoy the work so then it's less work right it's
1: well i feel it's also yeah it's like you said it's about intention where are your intentions at the time yeah, you know that's actually, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know and it doesn't yeah, matter if you are on a plane with Elizabeth.
0: you're going to screw up but do the best you can yeah, yeah
1: exactly well give us uh give us a, a, famous elizabeth Beisel swim set maybe one that she has knocked out of the park or she did on a regular basis or one that's just memorable to you
0: sure so well there's there's actually many that memorable and and for various reasons but um kind of an iconic type bluefish set that actually um at least during her freshman year at florida i know greg gave to not only her but to her whole group Mm. which had some of the florida people hating me and some of them (laughs) thinking i was pretty cool but um but i want to kind of give you two sets because the the one set just sounds like a lot and doesn't really mean anything other than something most people wouldn't want to do and then the next set which is kind of what the first set leads to so uh, and we just did this set uh the other day so four 400s free i am so that's freestyle back breast free. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason well, I heard of that from Bob Bowman and Greg Troy. So I couldn't think for a second that that was an easy thing to do, right? If, if those two guys are giving athletes this, there, there must be some sense behind it. And I, I am actually not sure what they think, but I came up with the idea that, you know, doing butterfly, a hundred fly in the front of a four. I am in a race rested suit on it's not that taxing, right? If you're if you're in shape and ready for it. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing 10 of them in practice, it just wears you down. And so then when you hit the backstroke, you're just tired. You're not really racing the backstroke. So sure. I theorize that doing freestyle first makes the back breast and free more similar to what you'd experience in the race. Gotcha. So we do a lot of free IMs. Um, so the set goes for 400 free IMs. Then it goes six fifties fly, so we're still getting some fly in. Mm-hmm. Then it goes three four hundred free ims, so we're knocking one off. Then it goes six one hundreds fly back. Mm. Then two four free ims, six one fifties fly back breast, and ultimately one four hundred free im, and then six two hundred ims. Um, the four hundreds are race; the others are kind of strong. Make them. It's 7,000 yards and meters by the end of the set total. So obviously everyone is pretty tired. Now, Elizabeth and a few other athletes um, could really shine in that type of set where they could actually descend those 400s. and, And early on with Elizabeth, I discovered that when she would get a best 400 free IM in practice, one or two weeks later, she would then do a best time in the 400 IM to the second of that free am in practice. Mm-hmm. So it actually became really easy to coach her. And it went from 424, that time with, with the fart machine when she won, won against the seniors, mm-hmm. to 418, to 412, all the way down to 404, which was her fastest yard time in high school with me. She had previously done a 404 and a free IM in practice. Wow. Um, so it was really interesting. And to the point where, Greg called me up and, and told me how she had gone 401 in a free. I am in practice in a similar set to what I just described. Mm. And then a week later, Elizabeth calls me and goes, guess what? I went in my 400. I am. And I said, 401. And she's like, how'd you know? And I said, because Greg told me you went that in practice and sure enough, it was right. So mm. it was that like that. And I don't, I don't think any other athlete that I've ever come across was that on point with that. Yep. Um, but so anyway, what, what I do with that type of set is that's that's early in the fall and then we'll progress to something where, um, and we, we do some stuff with single arm paddle, opposite fin, weak side is the paddle. Mm-hmm. So we'll do maybe three, two or three 300s, kind of build up, last one fast. Um, then some full on recovery, 50 canoe. So that's with a kickboard, doing mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Uh, 25 kick, 15 meter blast, 75 pull, do that twice. And then we'll do just two 400s free I am a strong in a race. And that race one is really where I'm setting up for kids, you know, a few weeks later to, to pop a best 400. I am. Yeah. And obviously that's a much more palatable free. I am set than the mm. first one that actually had 10 of them in it. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and we, we, with a lot of real strong 400 I um, Connor green, a young woman, uh, Brooks eager, they, they just knock these out of the park and then have a great 400 IM kind of the next time they go at it. I love it. Um, so it's, it, you know, in a way, like sometimes I think about how I coach, it's really not that hard, right? Like if you have these little kind of things that seem to work, obviously you got to get the kids to buy into it. Um, that's, that's a
1: little more of the trick, but, uh, but yeah. I love it. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. What are the characteristics of a great 400 IM? Like what do they have to have to be a good 400 IM?
0: Well, I used to think that the fly was really significant because thinking that, okay, if you can be fast in the fly and have it not that taxing, everything else can be best. And probably one of my strengths in coaching is backstroke. Um, So I really attack the high uh, rate backstroke in an IM. Um, But I I think at this point, you know, the best IMers used to be most of the best IMers had at least one week stroke. Now, the best I ever is Michael Phelps. I mean, every split when he set that world record, every split was world class and and you know, it wasn't just him, but uh, on the women's side, maybe not quite as much, but it you can't have a weak stroke anymore yeah. to be an elite for an. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with that, you know, I learned a lot with Elizabeth because she was really not a very good breaststroker early on, and it was easy to just kind of dismiss that she could make it up on the freestyle and and set it up on the back and make it up on the free but you you can't win olympic medals and have a weak breaststroke yeah and uh you know we were fortunate also to have laura sogar in the pool and two competitive kids so you know p- pitting them against each other i'm pit that's a bad word but having them yeah. compete with each other mm-hmm. um in breaststroke sets really raised elizabeth's uh, you know, ability to swim breaststroke to the point where it actually became one of her strengths. Um, But I think I think the back to breast roll turn. I think any any IMer that's not doing that is crazy. I mean, people complain about the loss of breath as being a detriment, but I think um, you know Elizabeth would would gain a body, maybe not quite a body, but at least half a body yep. length on world class athletes if they weren't doing that turn. Mm,
1: yeah, I agree.
0: Um, so you, you just, you got to train it. Um, but so I, I think all the all of it's important, right? And you got to be able to come home in the freestyle. Um, and, you know, I've had kids that are pretty decent distance freestylers, but after the breaststroke, they can't swim freestyle. So you, you kind of have to combat that as well. Um, I've learned that there's even a, a psychological or, a, or not even psychological, but a mental, actually a brain thing where when you're doing butterfly with both arms and breaststroke with both arms, the brain takes a little bit longer without realizing to click in that now I'm going with one arm. Um, Mm. And, and so when I kind of was told that by smart people that I trusted, I thought, Oh, that's really interesting. It makes sense. And so I've combated that just by harping on, it seemed to make sense rather than waiting to build into the backstroke to hit it immediately and force that little brain glitch to just, you know, doesn't matter anymore. It's what, once you're going, it's, it's done. So if you get going immediately, Hmm. you're there. Uh, And that that's definitely worked for us um, with, with a lot of athletes. Wow.
1: Very interesting. What what about the personality traits of a great 400 IMA?
0: Um, There's obviously a toughness and a willingness to um, endure some, some training and, and some pain in the race.
1: Is that innate uh, or is that something that can be changed?
0: I, I think both. Uh, I think in someone like Elizabeth, there w- was an innate factor. Um, and I think it's definitely something that if you build it early, they can always come away from it. But it's, I think later on, it's real hard to get people to get there. I remember um, a young great swimmer, Butterflyer, Alex Forrester, and um, freestyle was strong butterfly was amazing backstroke was okay and breaststroke was terrible so I am was really never a thing but I trained her to swim IM and one day she just broke down in practice and said why, why are you st- still trying to make me a I IM and I was like I'm just trying to make you a swimmer um, so I, I think the IM um, is basically well one it's I think it's more interesting to train I am than just one or two strokes I think it's um, you know we'll get kids back from college and they'll say you know I didn't do a single lap of breaststroke the entire year at college and I'm just like what I just mm. I find that kind of confusing mm. um, but I've never been in a situation where I've had separate groups and separate coaches for different groups so I in that situation maybe maybe I would segue to that but right now that doesn't make sense to me um but i i I think you can especially if you've got a kid that listens and they embrace work even if they're not like even if they don't love it or you know they don't like the pain but they kind of intellectually recognize that there's there's a pride in working hard there's um you know my father taught me when i was very young and at first i was mad at him you know, he explained to me that it was supposed to hurt. And I was like eight years old and I'm riding the car with him. And I was pissed. I was like, don't you love me, dad? Why, why would you want me to hurt? (laughs) And, and it was kind of that moment that I realized that no, actually, the willingness to kind of inflict some pain on yourself. And I don't mean in a, in a negative way, Mm -hmm. but, but to get better and, and believing that, you know, if I want to swim faster tomorrow or, or next year, I got to work harder than I did this year. And, and swimming, you know, it's uh, obviously everything is not a hundred percent, but I think swimming lends itself to that way of thinking. And so if you can get young kids to believe that, and if you can get their parents to believe that, so they're getting that message full, full circle, um, you know, with me, it was even my grandparents were teaching me that, you know, I, you know, grandfathers that would, would tighten lug nuts on a, on a, engine with their hands you know um just really tough people and so the thought of taking an easier way was was never an option or, or anything i wanted because my grandparents will think less of me if i if i don't work hard yeah. um but so if you can get kids to to kind of buy into that and get them to do the work and then of course you may find they're not going to be a 400 I remember they're going to be a 50 freestyler and that's cool too um and that those areas in in when you say hey, where have i changed um that one has been slower coming, but I'm, you know, starting to recognize uh, actually coaching a 50 free is way more harder. That didn't make sense. how I said it, but much harder. And uh, you know, the respect to the coaches and the athletes that can really get going for such a short period of time at such amazing speeds. I talked to Dave Durden a few years back about Nathan and uh, it was before Pax and uh, I asked Dave, I was like, how much is Nathan going to warm up? And he said to me, between 300 and 500 meters. And I was, my, my mind exploded because I couldn't imagine. I mean, I usually have kids warm up three to 4,000 and a good amount of it pretty hard. And I, the other part of that that was mind-blowing was Nathan spent at least an hour and a half maybe 2 hours maybe more on that 300 meters of warm up and everything else around it so it it was not taking a shortcut it was i mean there was so many methodical focused activities and and so even in the water that the 300 meters it wasn't just swim 300 meters yeah it was a you know combination of all kinds of things and um and then he, you know, won the race and, and got a best time and it was heroic. Um, and that was really that that kind of I was like, whoa, you know, I, I used to be, you know, an idiot caveman and, and think, oh, you know, the, the fifty that's you know anyone can do that or something like that and that's the complete opposite I know that. well
1: listen to the, that <laughs> that theory was around when I was swimming. you know that that yeah. belief and um so it's it's not foreign but it's, to it's me.
0: not it's not healthy right it's not a no it's not, it's it's not. not good for either side right you know if, if Elizabeth was walking around thinking that the 50 guys had it easier that would make the four that I am a lot less pleasant um but instead respecting what everyone's doing to be the best they can be is that's the way to go. Well,
1: there was always a simple answer from me as a fifty freestyler to anybody that thought it was easy. You know what the answer you know what the the question race, I, race me? Race <laughs> me, beat yeah, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah beat race. me and I'll do what you do. Yeah, you know, you do. Yeah, but I like if that. I beat you, that, then yep, then shut your mouth forever. Absolutely. You know? And uh, so that was always my easy solution to that. Um, love that. but you know, that's an interesting point. Um you know, when, when we grew up in um, club programs, whether it was in America or Australia, I grew up in Australia, but the philosophies were the same is that you swam yardage and you didn't specialize necessarily. You swam all four strokes and you trained yardage. And so has it evolved to now where we are um, looking at athletes that potentially are going to go on to be great sprinters are we looking at them within the club system saying why don't we develop them now or are they still being developed under the same rules and then once they get to college they're saying now you can specialize or now you can figure out if you're a sprinter or not are we doing that in the club system yet i
0: i I think there is and there's there's some coaches uh around the country and around the world that have had a lot of success with that um i i kind of fundamentally operate under a theory that i came up with back when i was swimming and that was that humans are not natural aquatic beings right Mm -hmm. so the the kind of the thought to me was that certainly the majority of people the masses are going to become better swimmers by swimming more they're going to get more comfortable in the water um you know, if we could go back to the days when, you know, there was so much less uh, worries and, and legal concerns and, and you, you'd have, you know, 20 kids at a summer outdoor pool with a diving board and the slide and, and, you know, relatively little supervision and, you know, kids are diving off of the top of the slide and they're running down the diving board and trying to dive as far as they can and they're doing contests in the water of just spinning and seeing how many times you can spin just by moving your body um i think stuff like that made those humans more aquatic and um now i i do operate under the you know so so we're bluefish we're basically we're about 70 kids right now not even quite 70 so a lot of that is covid but at the biggest we were about 130 so we've never had a huge number of athletes to draw from. So I'm faced with, if, if I want to score at nationals, I need a really high percentage of the people I have to work with to be really good. And so I think to get a large number of people some success in the pool, a lot of swimming is a way to do that. I'm not going to say it's the only way, but it's a way that I've been able to do that. Um, now, at the same time, the worst thing that could happen is have Someone, you know, maybe someone like yourself or, or some other somewhat uh, thoroughbred will say that um, that you drive them out of the sport because you just wore the heck out of them by swimming up and down the pool so much. Um, and all they really want to do is, is race and, and, you know, spend as much time and energy on some really fine details to improve what they're already good at rather than this kind of long monotonous thing. So I, I've tried to be able to recognize some of those people, still keep them within kind of my training and theories, but also be able to pull them out and and do some special things with them and not have it affect everyone else thinking, how come I don't get to do that? And, and you know, it's definitely a balancing act, but to really answer your question, I, I do think that there are, um, more and more coaches today, and they're having a lot of success. And so I have to keep looking at that, because I think they really are, you know, there's some coaches that are doing a lot of resistance stuff with towers, um, which, for the most part, I don't think was really being done in the club for all that much, you know, was mostly just in college. Um, But there's some, there's some clubs that are having tremendous success. And one of the things that, I know that they're doing is a lot of stuff, you know, daily on the towers. um, So a lot less volume. Um, And so that, that has me kind of coming up with some new theories that maybe, you know, maybe my idea of that humans aren't naturally aquatic and, and swimming is a way to get more aquatic and more comfortable with the water, but maybe this added resistance and things like that is also a way to maybe fast track that. So um, I'm actually excited to. Uh, in this COVID situation to try to get our, we have three, you know, the double power tower, so six buckets and, and get them into the pool that we're at now um, and give up some volume to start doing that kind of stuff a couple of times a week and, and see, if, see if we have some of the similar success that, that I've seen and even try some, you know, nothing, nothing heavy, but try some of the younger kids on it and see what, see what happens.
1: Well listen I appreciate you challenging yourself to at least think a different way or um, or look at things a different way. The way I see it is this um Chuck you know what are you trying to achieve in the 400 IM? When you have a great 400 IMer, what are they good at and 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 what are you what are you training to get them to be good at that? Like what system are you predominantly training in order to be a great 400 IMer?
0: I mean, obviously, there's a, a, an endurance system, and I and I'm not a science guy, so I I, I don't even know all the terminology. I think I don't I either.
1: Know. I don't care about it either. You know, like to the science <laughs> to me. But ultimately, what are you trying to do when you're when you're well, coaching I, 400 IM? What are you yeah. What are you trying to achieve?
0: Well, so my stick for the 400 IM is mm-hmm. basically, um, you know, diving in the fly and basically have the fastest fly you can have be competitive with the people that you want to be competitive with. So you're in the race, but, but have the fly be as least taxing as possible. Um, you know, to me, there's no such thing as easy fly. And in fact, faster fly is often easier than slower fly. Mm -hmm. So you want to, you want to maximize that curve without going past it. Right. Like you know, that movie uh, Spinal Tap, you, you never want to go to 11, right? Or even nine or 10. You kind of want to keep it at an eight. Keep it fast, but a pretty comfortable range. Um, and, and when you hit that backstroke, come off and and get that tempo going immediately. I like to lay off the legs in a four than I am in the backstroke because you're going to need the legs on the freestyle and the legs, I think, take so much oxygen so I'm I'm focused on high tempo on the backstroke. So we train that. We train that over and over and over again. Um, a killer back to breast turn, and uh and maximize that pull out. So you know I tell them you can breathe when the race is over. Uh, so
1: there's a hypoxic element in there.
0: the, the a little bit yeah. yeah I, sure. And yet I think getting oxygen when you can is crucial. But give it up the few times it makes a big difference. Yeah. Um. And and you know maximizing the speed, carrying the speed off the wall, right? So you, everyone is gonna be fastest off the wall and gonna slow down by the end of the lap, but you wanna slow down less and you wanna slow down later. So so put in that effort early in the lap to maintain that speed. You're gonna slow down anyway and then you get another wall. Um, you, you're coming off the, the backstroke, long pull outs, um, keep everything moving forward and really, really work the legs in the breaststroke it's a different muscle group, um, and and then for the freestyle, as I've explained to many athletes and, and some that were not even you know directly under me, but maybe at, at a camp or maybe on a on a team, um, they've carried it with them beyond that one experience with me, which I'm very proud of. And you know I talk about the the freestyle is not the end of a 400, it's a hundred free sprint, and if you want to win the race, you come off that wall sprinting and you don't look back and it's it's four laps or two laps of, of pain, it's gonna hurt anyway. You, it's, it's not gonna hurt anymore just cause you're going faster. And to believe that you can go faster. And I, you know, again, there's virtually no science behind this, but I, I go like this to kids and I'm like, what, what about this is like the muscles and free? I was like, your muscles are fine. Your heart is hurting, but everything else and just sprint that freestyle. And the kids that that actually buy into that thought, they realize that they actually can do that. You know, you stop feeling sorry for yourself and just do it. And you'll feel much better at the end of the race. So that that's that's how I talk about the 400 IM. Um and, and when you get kids to believe that and have the training and skills behind it to actually implement all that, you you get a great formula I am.
1: So why do you need volumes of work to achieve that in your mind? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, here's another
0: thought uh, that that does kind of carry through my general philosophy. And that is, you know, the question of if you took a a horse and a human and they had to run across the Sahara Desert, who would win? Mm -hmm. It'd be the human. And and the reason, and, and in fact, there's only, and I don't know who they are or what they are, but there's only three or four species on the planet that would actually beat the human in that type of a endurance race and so basically we as humans have an enormous engine of uh, endurance and so it seems like well that would be crazy not to train that and then if you combine that with my thought that humans aren't natural swimmers and swimming more is going to create a scenario where um you're more comfortable in the water you, you're just it, it's a horrible way of getting there right but it is a way of getting there you you become more efficient you become more aquatic you're balanced in the water you just figure it out because you're doing so many laps. um doesn't necessarily make you faster right so i i did thank goodness come up with another theory and this is nothing new it's been said before but in order to swim fast you got to swim fast so so if i'm doing volume and it's making kids slower well we're going to stop doing the volume at some point um so many people would be shocked they might be shocked at the high end that we go to at certain points of the season but they'd also be shocked at the low end that we're at a lot of the season um and that's that's when we're trying to swim fast so to your question still um I don't, I don't know that I'm right, but I also look at someone like Dick Schulberg and I don't think I feel pretty comfortable saying this, that no one in the history of swimming anywhere in the world has had so many high school age, Olympic level national team, elite level athletes out of a very small population, 70, 80 kids and a population that really is from the neighborhood because it was never a boarding school. It was it, it, every now and then they'd have someone move in and live with a family or something. But the majority of the swimmers, were, so it was club. It wasn't you know prep school bowls or petty or, or whatever where, where kids are coming from all over the world and living there, it was club. And uh, you know they did unbelievable stuff. And every year there was, you know, now did some people get burnt out of the sport? Maybe, um, the people that I knew didn't and they loved it. Um, and and uh, so I, I, I feel like there's gotta be something to that. And again, if you've got a thousand kids to draw from and you can highlight three that are different, you know, three Elizabeth's or, or three whatever, um, you, you could be very, very successful. But I think if you've got 70 to 100 kids that just statistically having unique, special individuals in that small number is going to be a lot less common, um, you know, may happen every now and then. But So I, I think that to get a lot of people very successful swimming more is, is at least part of the time is beneficial. And, and I'm not the type that just one day out of the blue is going to throw some huge set with no real purpose or reason there's a buildup. There's a ramp up. Um, we, we have very, very, very few, um, rotator cuff issues and stuff like that. Um, normally the, when I have a kid that has some shoulder issues, they've come from another club and they've had that issue. Um, we do a ton of dry land to kind of get all that stuff strong and healthy. Um, And also I'm not interested in pushing kids into that kind of pain, right? Like I'm, if someone is hurting in that way, stop, you know, I'll be the first one to say, you know, stop and let's, let's come up with something else. So um, I, I'm kind of going around the the question um, what in the, what, what in the four minutes, right? Approximately four, four and a half minutes long course. um, Why, why do you need to do tens of thousands of yards to be successful at that short race. Um, again, I think part of the time it's beneficial. I don't think everyone has to. Um,
1: well, how do, how, yeah. how do we get faster then? Like in, in terms of where kids are and where, you know, in 10 years from now, The whole paradigm is going to shift and everybody's, you know, you've got, you've got high school kids that are swimming times that were winning NCAAs 20 years ago, you you know? So it's like, we're getting faster. So how are we actually getting faster by, by doing the same work or doing volumes of work? How are we actually getting faster as well?
0: So, I I mean, I, I think that um, that's actually a really good point because we are getting faster. And I, and I think the, you know, paradigm of huge volume programs is, is much less today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, So I, 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 you know, is it possible that, uh, you know, some people have had success despite that? I guess so. Um, I I don't know. Um, But I think that there's other factors that play into it. Um, Certainly, the athletes that you're working with, what would be interesting. And I'm not sure if this has been done, but, um, are we seeing just the top getting faster and faster and faster, or are we seeing the entire, you know, mass getting faster and faster and faster? I think probably yes, but I'm not hundred percent sure that it's as cut and dry. as just the top. Um, I, I think a big part of the top getting faster is a lot of the innovations, power towers, weightlifting, um, a, d- a different way of weightlifting. Um, obviously, you know, bathing suits and blocks and things like that play in a little bit, but I don't think that's hugely significant um, other than like 2008 and 9. Um,
1: well, I look at it as cuts. If, if qualifying times are getting faster then generally the, the whole population is getting faster, you know? So if the, if the cut in the 400 IM that's a much
0: bigger population, Yeah, right? So I think that drives the cuts because the, it's a much, much bigger population, right? Just mm. in, in new England alone. Um, I, I think it's actually come down a little bit now and obviously COVID has taken a hit on it, but just in like five years, just the new England LSC doubled in size. So the, the whole, the number of swimmers, actually, I think it's, it's now detrimental in that, you know, we don't have facilities enough or facilities that, you know, who wants to be at meets for hours and hours. Yeah. A day. That's not good for anybody, but yeah. um, it, until we get the infrastructure to catch up to the numbers of swimmers, that that's a, that's an issue. But um, yeah, you, you, you I, I think your point, is, and I agree with it, um, even though maybe I'm a little bit slower to really step on board, um, but I think you're right that the coaches are getting more creative, so more volume is less necessary. Um, and, and, but I think that you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, so to speak. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, I don't have any solid theories on any of it. I'm just trying to challenge, (laughs) I'm trying to challenge ourselves to question ourselves. You know, I'm questioning me. I want to question you. And it's like, I think if we force ourselves to think of like, well, why am I doing this? How am I doing it? How's other people doing it? How's it evolving? How can we get better? You know, these are the questions that I constantly ask myself and I, and I'm always asking that of other people.
0: So this summer, um, when we were able to get in the water, um, we had a, an outdoor pool that was eight lanes, but very narrow lanes and no gutters. Um, so pretty wavy um, and no meets on the horizon. Right. Like that mm. was crystal clear. Mm. And we were we'd been out of the water. Basically, March, middle of March through I think we got back in the water early June so that's a pretty good chunk of time out of the water I think we had been doing zoom dry land and, and did a very good job with it I think about an hour and a half every day of uh, some pretty good dry land stuff so the kids were fit and but especially with not having meets on the horizon um, I made two decisions that were very different than anything I'd done in my career one was uh, we didn't have any practice on the weekends so we could have some people thought I was crazy because they were scrambling for pools, mm. thinking that if they could, they would, you know, use every second they could. Uh, and there I had it available on the weekends. And I thought, you know what, this is probably the one time in my wife's in my life and all of these kids lives of their swimming career that people can have weekends off. Mm-hmm. And we were also swimming earlier in the day. So people we were, everybody was done I think the latest we were going was seven o'clock and that wasn't every night. So everybody was done and able to have dinner with their families and and all this stuff. So I thought that was really, really valuable. And the other thing was being that we were not going to have meats and being that early, early on with COVID, you know, it was like two people in a lane and then we progressed to uh, four people in a lane, but like station. So only two people at the walls, we had those, uh, we still use them, the plexiglass, Mm -hmm. I call them sneeze guards. So you know, the kids are basically standing alone at the wall, someone else at the uh, opposite 15 meter mark and the other 15 meter mark, and then someone at the wall. But we weren't allowing them to actually pass each other, like in terms of catch up and, and overtake. So there was no racing going on. And so basically we did drills and skill work every single day we, we did. A, so we, we were only in the water for an hour, like hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes. And we'd had about an hour and 15 minutes of dryland, So the dry land was intense and, and mm-hmm. very kind of organized and, and fitness and strength oriented, power oriented oriented. Um, I think our vertical leap across the board, I now have a bunch of boys that can like touch the rim of the basketball hoop. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we're, we're Irish and Italian from new England. You can't <laughs> touch the rim, you know? Um, so, so that's pretty cool. And I think we're swimming better. Because of the daily, 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 daily skill work. Um, so, what have I learned from that? Well, uh, we're back to doing weekends, um, but uh, I, I think I think there is a lot to be learned there. And, and something like COVID um, or any kind of obstacle has always forced me to be a better coach, right? Like uh, you, you know, you go through that that first moment of woe is me why why is this happening what you know and and quickly you got to snap out of that you know it's just human and and decide okay um i've got one less lane i've got this i've got that what what can i do differently that could make this a really effective situation Mm -hmm. Um, so right now i want to get those towers in um and then i i believe that and then i'm going to try to if the Y lets, we've rented a Y, we've got a real nice relationship. We're, we're not officially in a Y team, but we're have a great relationship with them. Um, and, and I think they'll let me put some permanent pulley systems up by the ceiling so we can have, we got six lanes and I want to have, I'd love to have 12 on one end and 12 on the other end. Again, with COVID we'll, we'll stagger the push off on each end, but basically have kids go one way and back, then from the other side, one way and back, and, and we could really get a pretty cool circuit going on with with a lot of people on pulleys at one time. So um, awesome. and, and I know um, Randy Reese has always made it a point to wherever he's gone to like kind of first priority, get a pulley system set up because it's that important to him. I think that's pretty interesting.
1: Great. I, I love that. And, you know, one of the things you said earlier that I'm a big uh, proponent of, and, and I, I hold true to this statement. I think it's incredible in terms of swimming is in order to swim fast, you got to train fast. You know, yeah. I, I, I believe it too. So I want you and I want every other coach out there listening to this, to challenge themselves into thinking, how does that relate to sprinting? Because ultimately that that's all you're trying to do is you're trying to swim fast. And so when you're thinking of coaching a 400 IMA and you're saying, well, we, we need to, we need to go fast in practice. I'm thinking of how do I coach a 50 freestyle, hundred freestyle. And I'm think I'm thinking the same thing. How do you go fast in practice? So all I want my athletes to do is go fast. And, and whether that means we do volumes of fast swimming, then, then that's what we do, you know? And um, I'm always, right. you know, you, 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 to-
0: well, you go. Yes once it gets to the point where it's not fast, yeah, then you got to reevaluate and, yeah. and change something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's it. When you see a great 400 IM, when you see somebody do something, the 400 IM, you think to yourself, wow, that's possible. And how do I get there? When I see somebody like a Caleb Dressel or a Simone manual, somebody like that swim a 1500 free, I think, wow, that's possible. How do I get there? You know? So it's yeah. like, we're, yeah. we're asking the same questions. Sure. Um, and I think ultimately the, the way to get there is the same way, you know, just swim fast in practice, be right. prepared to come. I, in I, go. Here,
0: here's somewhat of a question for you. Um, in terms of the 50, yeah. Um, you know, when you were asking about the 4. am, you know, one of the things that I think most coaches do is you kind of break down the parts, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. You, you do pieces of it and you train pieces and then sometimes yep. you put it together and whatnot. So with that in mind, um, probably someone like myself would start to have more success in a 50 if I actually applied some of that same thinking to the, and broke the 50 down. Um, so that, that's exactly. I may, yeah. I, may, I, may change I mean, I craft. do it
1: exactly the same way. I do it's volumes different. of repetitions. That's what I do. Right. You right. do volumes yeah. of repetitions right. and you try not to swim the exact distance um in practice because you're always going to be a lot slower than you would obviously in a race and psychologically that's going to mess with the athletes so so what you're doing you're doing free IMs. so they're never going to swim a free im in a race but they're doing it in practice and they're gaining confidence from doing it this way even though it's different than the the way they swim because because they're swimming a little bit different and it's the same thing in the 50 i don't want to just do um repetitions of 50s because they're just going to be so much slower than they would in a race it's going to mess with them psychologically so i just break down the 50 as components and and do volumes of those components you know in and out of fast walls yep. we can do we can do a hundred of those right, and they could right. take two hours you know sure. uh, swimming a yeah. hundred in and outs you of, of get walls Tired at
0: the end of it yeah. yeah yeah
1: and you're exhausted and you're worked your butt off i can i could get an athlete i can get an athlete to throw up by just doing vertical kick not even moving you know like not, not yep. swimming a single yard um, yeah. you know, I could put a chair over their head and do a vertical kick for five minutes. They're, they're, they're yeah. done, yeah. you know? So yeah. there's so many different ways that you can get what you want out of the athlete. Um, but, but I, I agree with you in terms of the way you're thinking about the 400 am is exactly the way I think about the 53 is break it into components, train those components, do volumes of those components, hit specific paces, hit them over and over again in practice, you know, change up the volumes. So you're doing different specific things. But ultimately, you're just trying to build the ultimate 50 freestyle or build the ultimate 400 IMA. Yeah. Somebody that when they stand behind the blocks, they feel 100% confident. They know exactly what they do, They need to do. In fact, they know, they know so well that it just happens automatically. They don't yeah. even have to think about it. It's actually turning the brain off behind the blocks and allowing the body to, to go. Yeah. And, and you want that whether you're a 50 freestyle or 400 IMA And so that's, that's the way... Um, now, I don't, I don't know much about the 400 IM. I am. I don't think I could successfully coach it, but I'm sure the principles uh, okay. are just the same, yeah. you know? So yeah. that's why no, I, I,
0: I definitely agree. And, it, you, you know, the kind of the underlying thing to all of this is the psychology, mm-hmm. which, um, you, you know, v- very possibly the psychology of the Schaubergian mm-hmm. methodology uh, was really the thing that was the most powerful, right? Yep. Um, you know, Schoberg often talks about a story of um, two or three women athletes all from Germantown vying for two Olympic spots in Fort mm-hmm. m mm-hmm. And uh, one of them had chosen to do a 16,000 I.M., six months prior or however much prior and the other one chose not to they had the option mm-hmm. and the one who did the sixteen thousand i am made the team and fully believed that because she did that that's why she made the team yeah. and and so reality you know was there some magic physically happening or or was it just the belief mm-hmm. and the ability to turn the brain off with the belief that I've done everything possible to do this. Now let's just go out and have fun and let it happen. So yeah. you know, there's, there's a, and, and I, you know, I love the training component of it, but I think I really love the psychology of it. Yeah, it's, I uh, do too. And that's a, you know, constantly learning from the athletes, right? Like what, what makes that, what seems to make them tick, what might, what shuts them down. Um, you, you know, hundreds of mistakes made should have said this shouldn't have said that, da, 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 da. but if you, if you learn, you know, hopefully you don't make the same mistake again.
1: Well, yeah. Well, listen, the, the psychology of two teammates like Tom Dolan and Gary Hall jr. In 1996 are completely different. Their mentalities oh, totally, right? are yeah. different, yeah. but the psychology of them, how they get to the block is the same. Yeah. Tom needs to know that he worked harder than every other person out there and he can kick their butt gary needs to know that i'm the i'm the fastest sprinter on the planet you know and and how you build those psychologies Uh, are different but similar at the same time you know you've just got to find ways to say how do i get that person to believe that and how do i get that person to believe that and ultimately um those things are just built on a belief system through through practice you know and and that's kind of the way i look at it it's not it's not that gary didn't work hard and he worked hard they both need to feel like they're invincible and you need to build those um egos very similarly but but different you know so and
0: yeah and 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 still have them be a good person. And, and, but yeah, I mean, there's winning is selfish, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's, uh, it's a very, uh, me, 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 me mm-hmm. type of, uh, uh, mentality, which, uh, I think is necessary. And you, you don't want to squash that in anybody, yeah. but at the same time, you, you don't want to be hanging out with a bunch of, you know, prima donnas and yeah. whatnot. Exactly. But, yeah. exactly.
1: Well, Chuck, I appreciate it. It's been, uh, it's been enlightening, my friend. Thank yeah, you very awesome. much
0: i would seriously i'd love to have you come visit um that would be awesome get you on pool deck
1: i'd love to once we can get uh get flying again properly and come out i'd I'd love to come visit man i appreciate
0: it you know
1: yeah i'm in i'm in la and uh Loving the LA life right now. So I don't, I don't think it's forever. It's too expensive out here, but, but in terms of what you have out here, it's incredible. I mean, you have mountains over here and beaches over there and everything in between. So um, it's pretty, pretty fun lifestyle. Very similar to what I had back in Sydney. Um, So it's kind of, I've never
0: been to Australia. Oh, really? I've had um, it's actually been a, a career goal to get to Australia, you know, through swimming um, and I've had two opportunities, both of which I turned down cause it made sense at the time, but so I'm still, still hoping to get to Australia.
1: Well, that's a great place, man. You'd love it out there. Cool. Um, last question, if you could have a dream food truck, what yeah. would you be selling?
0: <laughs> okay. So I, 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 already have the dream. So, okay. um, so about eight years ago, I had, I discovered that I had an issue with gluten Mm-hmm. So I've been basically wheat free ever since then. And, but, but loving food so much and loving really good food and, and trying to figure out ways to make food gluten-free that that's really, really tasty. So the first off the truck would be gluten-free, okay. but it would be stuff that gluten eaters would come back for, right? Like it, it wouldn't be, Oh, I'll try it, but that's not for me. I'll go to the truck mm. with wheat. So um, one of the things would be a, um, it's a, a Vietnamese. Uh, I don't really know what to talk it talk, uh, but it, it's Vietnamese street food. Mm. And you take the the rice paper, which is crispy, at you know mm. by nature until you uh, get it wet. But you just put it in a hot skillet, and you cook an egg over it, through it, and you put in some scallions, and you can put in some other things. I like it actually with a little sriracha. You fold it over. And it's almost like a little Vietnamese taco. It's delicious. So that that's one thing that'll be mm, on the menu. Delicious. Um, definitely uh, some some uh, like truffle French fries uh, mm. kind of thing like that. So it, it'd be a very good food truck. So
1: well, listen. Uh, there's no time like the present, my friend. Let's get to work. If you want to have a have a guarantee of me coming out to visit, I'm coming out for the food truck. That's for sure. All right, then. that's a deal. <laughs> All right, Chuck Batchel. I appreciate your time, my friend. Take care.
0: Great to see you. Thank you.
1: But